Let's go ahead and get started in a word of prayer. Father, thanks for this beautiful day out, and I pray that uh, you would teach us in this time together that we would understand wondrous truths from your word. Thank you so much for having this opportunity to be here. So many people do not, and we do. And I pray that we would be attentive. And thank you for your word again in Christ's name. Amen. Um, we've been working down through this whole doctrine of predestination election. I note that this is week four, and uh, I'm, I'm trying desperately to get through this as fast as I can, but it's not working very well because of the discussion. That's okay, because we need to discuss this. This is a very um, important topic to work through. Um, last week, we, we went down through the, the, really the Westminster Catechism and the, talking about God's eternal decree, and then we brought up the, yeah, but what about verses? Because a lot of people will come along and say, well, okay, great, you know, you're teaching this whole concept that God chose in eternity past, and that is an irrevocable choice, and God will redeem those whom he will redeem. Um, but what about whosoever will may come? What, what does it mean by that? What, what does that mean? And we talked last week about 2 Peter 3, 1 through 18, Really trying to, it's really 3, 1 through 9 there, but the, the idea there is um, some say, well, but what, about, what, what does it mean when it says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance? Well, if that was an effectual will, what would happen to everybody? Everybody be saved, right? I mean, can God's will be thwarted? No, it can't be. So it can't be that that's God's determinative will that everybody be saved. But what it is saying is this, the, Peter is talking to the elect that are scattered throughout Asia, Bithynia, Cappadocia, and Galatia, right? We know that because in 2 Peter 3, 1, he says, this is the second letter I've written to you. So the first letter he wrote to them, you guys are all what's, we got two handouts. on this new one, right? Yeah, this is on the new handout. Here you are. There you go. So if this is the second letter he's written to them, we got the first letter. Who's the first letter written to? The elect which are scattered. So he's writing to the elect. And what is he saying basically in 2 Peter 3? I am, God is not slack. He's not waiting. He's not taking his time to come back because he's busy doing other things, because he's procrastinating, because he has better things to do. God is waiting for what? For all the elect to repent. He's not willing that any of the elect should perish, but that all should come to repentance. All right, that's, that's the understanding of that passage. It's not that God is not willing that anybody in general should perish in that passage. He's talking about the elect in that passage. And there's an interesting passage that, that helps you understand that a little bit more in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. If you go to 2 Timothy 2.10... Um, Timothy, of course, is written to Timothy, Paul's true son in the faith. And uh, in 2 Timothy 2.10, Paul says this very interesting, has this very interesting statement. He says, uh, Paul's talking about his ministry. Now, where is Paul when he's writing 2 Timothy? He's in prison. Um, he's waiting to either go before Nero or he's waiting for the verdict to come down. Um, he is very close to the time of his death. He's not going to live very much longer. This is his last, the last book he's writing. It's the last, it's his swan song, so to speak. And uh, he's in prison. He's suffered a lot for the Lord throughout his life. And he says, um, verse 8, 2 Timothy 2, verse 8, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. I'm in chains, but God's word is not in chains. Therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect. Why is Paul in chains? Why does he say he's in chains? For the elect. So that they would what? they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Wait a minute. He said, I'm, I'm suffering here for the elect so that they may obtain. Now, do the elect, as he's saying that, are the elect that he's talking about, are they already saved? 
Not yet. But they're going to be, right? Mm -hmm. Why is Paul suffering all things for the elect's sake? So that they can come to repentance. repentance. Mm -hmm. All right? You can be elect and not saved. He's saying, I'm, I'm going through all of this stuff because God has his people and the gospel is the means whereby those people respond. And that's, that's the, the side here we've got to keep in mind. God uses the gospel. He uses our message of proclamation to bring the elect to salvation. We're part of the process. That's part of the predestination. Dave, you're... Well, this goes back to Paul's <coughs> Yeah. Well, he's, he's suffering the prison here. He's talking about prison. He doesn't know he's going to be martyred yet. We know he is. No, that's not, yeah. But that's the way that reads. You could, the, yeah, and I think, I know where you're going with that, but I think what, what he's trying to say there, and this, this, is, this is where you just gotta, you just gotta put your brain on a shelf and just say, God's got this figured out better than I do. The elect that Paul is talking about, will they come to Christ whether he suffers or not? Maybe not. If you're elect, will you come to Christ? No. Somebody will get the word to him, but what is Paul doing? What is Paul saying? I'm part of the process. I want to be part of this process. Okay, so there's no way you can be elect and go to God. Right. Okay. I mean, it's the same thing with Esther. You see this in the book of Esther, right? This is not what he's saying. It is what he's saying. The way you read, you read it the way he says it. He's doing this so that... And from our perspective, you're right. From. Yes and no. You're going to get yourself in knots on this. You really are. Yeah, you're, you, you are. Here's the, see, here's, the, here's, what, here's what the scripture is trying to say, and I think what Paul's trying to say here. And also when you look at, um, remember when he was to go into Corinth and, Christ, and God said, I have many people in this city? Now, he had not been there yet. The gospel had not been preached yet, but God had people in Corinth that were going to be saved. God knew who they were. God knew the elect. He brought Paul there to preach the gospel to them. And that is where the mystery is found. That, that's, I don't understand it, and I can't explain it to you. Because the Bible doesn't explain it to me. I want to be part of the process. I want to be part of the means whereby God's word is taken to the people so that they may believe. If I don't do it, God will save his people. But I'm going to miss a blessing. It's the same thing you see in Esther, right? Mordecai told Esther, if you don't go before the king, God's going to save his people. But you're going to miss a blessing. And maybe God put you as queen for the very purpose of saving this people. That's, that's where you let God do his thing. <laughs> and, and that's the only way I know how to make all the verses fit. You, you do what God has called you to do. God has called me to preach. God has called me to proclaim. God has called me, and we're going to talk about implications of this, I have some people right now that I'm praying for that they would come to know the Lord. They're Mormons. Now that's a tough nut to crack. From the human perspective, they're done for. I can, there's nothing I'm going to do that's going to make one iota difference in them. But they're already predestined. But I don't know that. So, and, I don't, and I don't get a copy of the Book of Life and I don't bother myself with, well, I, I'm only going to pray for them if they're elect. I don't know if they're elect. All I know is this, God's put a burden on my heart for them. So what should I do? Pray for them. Why would God put a burden on my heart for them? He has. I don't know why. Of all, of, I don't have a burden for everybody, but I have a burden for them. On the flip side to that is we can't look at somebody and go, you know, I'm clearly not You cannot do that. And, and, and that's, that's where you've got you to disassociate yourself from this from this eternal fatalistic viewpoint that you can run down, you don't want to go there. You don't want to go down that fatalistic viewpoint because you don't know how God is going to use you or how God is going to use the Word or what God's plan is. You don't have a copy of the Book of Life. You do what God's called you to do. You preach. You proclaim the Word. You treat everybody, let's put it this way, you treat everybody as though they're elect. Just treat them all like they're elect. And don't worry about whether they are or not. Pray for them. 
Now, this is interesting. If I were to do a word association quiz with you and say, I want you to give me the name of somebody that you most closely associate with evangelism, who would it be? Who's the second most second one that you would think of? All you EE people. Kennedy, D. James Kennedy, right? Founder of Evangelism Explosion, D. James Kennedy. You know what D. James Kennedy believes? What I just exactly said. He believes that there is God has an elect. He doesn't know who they are. He has an elect. So why does he create evangelism explosion? Why does he burn his energy to preach the salvation, to teach people to share their faith? Why does he do that if they're going to be in anyways? Because he understands we have a part to play in this. I don't. We. we I have a direct quote from him. I'm not making this up. I have him stating it in his own words. That God has chosen those whom he would save. But you know what? I want to be part of the process. I want to be the one to bring the message of salvation to them. And I don't get hung up on who's in the book of life and who's not in the book of life. I'm more worried about if I'm in the book of life. That's the person I'm worried about. The other people, I don't know. I take the gospel to them. I preach the gospel to them. I act as though they can all be saved. And I don't worry about how that sorts out. Because the danger is if you really... If, if, you, if you take the wrong view of this, you can become very fatalistic and very lazy in your spiritual life. Say, well, I don't need to witness to my neighbor. You know, if they're elect, they're in. I'm not going to worry about it. I'm going to go play golf today. Well, why did God put your neighbor next to you? Why were you there? <laughs> Who's to say that you're not there in order to reach them with the gospel, right? Who's to say you're not there for that? And that's how Paul, I think that's the way you understand what Paul's saying here. He's saying, I want to be part of the process. I want to be there. From the eternal perspective, will God save his elect whether I do it or not? Sure he will. But you know what? God called me to do something. And who's to know whether I'm not part of the process whereby that elect person hears the gospel? By the way, salvation always comes from hearing the word. You realize that. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You don't come to Christ and not hear the gospel presentation. And how does the gospel presentation get to that person? How shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall one preach except they be sent? We're sent. And, and you've got to allow both of those things that don't make sense in our brain together it's like what Pastor said last week. Remember, he said there are certain things you can't split apart. You can't split compassion and passion apart. You can't, you can't make two different things on that. There, these things go together. They, they mesh together perfectly in the mind of God, but there's some rough edges that don't seem to quite connect in our own brains. It's okay. So then how do you explain the whosoever wills? How do you explain that? Romans 10, 13 Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Is that a valid statement? Yes. Absolutely. But who is going to be the one to call on the name of the Lord? The elect are. But it's still a valid, a valid call. It's the same thing. Remember when Christ came, um, John, when John showed up on the scene, what did he preach? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What was his message? Repentance. For what? Salvation. Not salvation. For your sin because what? The kingdom of heaven is here. Now, if you're the average Jew walking around and you heard John preaching, what would you assume he meant by kingdom of heaven? Yeah, the, God's promise, right? The Messiah is here. The king is coming. He's going to be here. And I need to repent because the Messiah is going to be here and I, I need to be ready for that. Now, was that a bona fide call to repentance? Absolutely. What would have happened had Israel as a nation repented? Salvation would not have been offered to the Gentiles. Because? Because Israel was the chosen. The kingdom would have been there, right? Mm -hmm. Was that a bona fide offer? When Christ came repent, said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that was his initial message. It was no different than that of John. 
repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Had Israel as a nation repented, what would have happened? What would have happened is the kingdom would have come. He was there. You had the king, right? The offer was valid. It was a valid offer. But we have to assume that that was not God's plan. There's no assumption about it. Romans says that is, was God's plan. But the point is this. It doesn't remove the fact that it was a valid offer. You say, I don't understand that. Don't worry about it. You're not going to. I don't understand that. It was a valid offer. The valid offer to Israel was, if you repent, you'll get the kingdom. That was a valid, bona fide offer had they repented, but they didn't repent. So you have the postponement of the kingdom. Are, is, are they going to repent as a nation someday? Absolutely. When they do, what happens? They get the kingdom. But it was a bona fide offer. The way you understand, and by the way, Romans 10 comes after what? Romans 9. Romans 9. <laughs> See, that wasn't a trick question, was it? No. What does Paul say in Romans 9? I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. mercy. I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. Uh, but that's not fair. Uh, shut up. Who are you to question your creator? That's the Schaefer translation. You have to write. <laughs> Who are you to question? That's, that's, the, that's the sovereignty of God. But then Romans 10, it says, look, whosoever will may come. Who's going to come? The people who are elect. But it's still a bona fide offer to everybody. Do you see, you see the apparent paradox here in our own minds? You can go out and you can proclaim the gospel to anybody. Don't worry about whether their name is in the book of life. Don't worry about whether they're elect. Preach the gospel to them and say, if you want to believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God is calling you. And if they're elect, what will happen? They'll respond. No. You know, so even though you have your left, you have a movie that was no man's not excuse, you have your left, how does that fit? Well, no, how does that fit? You know, over, I would say that you have creation, you have a conscience, therefore every man is not excuse. And so you try to marry that up with your left, that's something you're not going to find the answer to. One of the things that um, Christ is teaching Nicodemus in John 3, and we. If we go through this verse by verse, we'll never get done. Okay, so I'm not going to do that. Go read it. But Nicodemus comes and says, we know your teacher come from God. No man can do what you're doing unless God's with him. He, he, he had a concept that Jesus was something other than just the average run-of-the-mill rabbi walking around Israel. There was something different about Jesus. And what did Jesus say? Unless you be born again, you're not going to see the kingdom of heaven. And immediately, what did Nicodemus do? Well, how can I be entered the second time in my mother's womb and be born? I don't think he was saying that um, in a realistic sense. He was just being a little sarcastic. You know, that doesn't, I don't, what does that mean? And what did Christ say? The wind blows where it wills. And he compares the wind to what? To who? Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit blows where the Holy Spirit blows. Except you be born again, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. And what Christ is saying is that how is it that you are born again? By the Spirit, Spirit who blows where he blows. How many of you in here decided the day of your birth? Right? I mean, you're in the womb and it's all nice and warm and comfy in there. And you say, well, you know, I think it's time to go and hit the big world. Did anybody make a conscious decision to be born? No. You were born. And the same thing, what Christ is telling Nicodemus, the same concept holds true. God's spirit will bring life and, and understanding. And when he does, you will be born again. But then he follows it immediately by saying, God so loved the world, world that he gave his only begotten son. How is it that people believe? Did God love just, just only certain people of all the other people? He loved the world. That's what it says. How did God love the world? He gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes on him. But who are the whosoever's? Who will ultimately believe? The elect. But from the human perspective, the gospel call goes out to all people because we don't have the plan of God. We don't know his sovereign decree. 
I don't have a copy of the book of life. I don't worry about that. I proclaim the gospel. And does it sound like I'm a schizophrenic on this? Yes, it does, because I am. Because I don't know how it totally goes together. So are you predestined to be a schizophrenic? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Part of the evangelistic process is for our benefit. It's it is. For our growth and development. Yeah. Not necessarily for the people that we hope to I mean, it's for our benefit. I mean, I saw this work. Yeah, I saw this work front up. We had an exchange student that was an absolute total atheist. I mean, she was taught her entire life that there is no God. God is a crutch for the weak people. I mean, that's what she was taught. That's what she was brought up to believe. So she winds up, she was going to go to Canada. And she was all set to go to a family in Canada, and she wound up with me and Donna. All right. That was, that was she liked Star Trek. Guess what I like? Star Trek. Yeah. She wanted to be an astrophysicist. Guess what I graduated with a degree in? Astrophysics. All right. So, I mean, now, God ordained that. God, God switched her family to us. Why? It was meant to be. It was be. part of the predestinating plan of God to bring her to faith. She wound up with us. And she wound up in a family that was a Christian. Christian family and we said look you don't have to come to open door we go to church every Sunday you don't have to do that if you would not want to go you don't have to go you think it would be fun for you to go and she, and she was taught in her um, you know from her exchange program that that's sort of what American people do so it's sort of fun to go and just if nothing just it's a social thing to see what it's like she came here she loved the music and the youth group and uh, God began working on her heart and during the course of the next five months, God brought her to salvation. Amen. Ellie. Now, I prayed for her all during that time. And there were times when I was able to share with her and talk to her. And I remember telling her, I said, Ellie, you got to understand. I told her this. I said, if you're, if, if you're elect, God will save you regardless of what I do. But, you know, I want to be part of this process. I'd like to see it happen. I want to be part of this thing. And God allowed me to be part of the process whereby she was brought to salvation. And God opened her heart and God opened her mind and God gave her understanding. I was part of the process. Would she have been saved had I never existed? Of course. But that's not the point. I don't care about that point. I care about the point that I got to be part of the process. I got to see it happen. Did you No. She was saved here at, um, on the, the um, Good Night Friday service um, in, in 2001. She, was, she actually came to know the Lord then. Because what had happened is, she, I was talking to her, she said, you know, I, I prayed the prayer and nothing happens. And I said, yeah, but you're still hanging on to the, to the wheel of your life. You, you want to you you keep your hand on the wheel and give God a, a try. And I said, it doesn't operate that way. You've got to let go of your life. Unless you're willing to let go, nothing's going to happen. It's like coming to an edge of the cliff and, and God saying, jump, and you say, well, give me a rope, and then I'll, I'll take a step over. No, you don't, it doesn't operate that way. You go off, and God's there to catch you. And uh, she didn't get that. Finally, Good Friday, she said, okay, I've had enough of this. She let go of the steering wheel of her life. And she said, it's, she can't explain it. She just knew that she had come home, that God had saved her because she let go of her life. I was part of the process. Listen, that's changed me. That's cool to be part of the process. And I know that had I never existed, she would still be saved. But, you know, I don't, I, don't, I don't get hung up on that. I go back to the part that I was part of the process. I, I got to see it happen, and it strengthened my faith. There's no fatalism in the evangelism, folks. When you stand up and say to somebody, whosoever will may come, that is... You can, you can say that with every fiber of your being because they can. If they're elect, they will come and nothing will stop them from coming. And we're going to talk about a few implications here if we get to it. But one of the great things about this, when you understand this, you don't have to change the gospel to make them respond. See, that's one of the great dangers, right? There's a great danger in, in, in evangelism that, you know, if I tell somebody, you know, if you come to Christ, you might have to give up everything. Boy, I better not tell them that because, that, you know, that might, that might turn them off. If you come to Christ, uh, 
you may lose everything you have. You may lose your relationships. You may lose your job. Well, I can't tell them that. I mean, that's not, that's not going to be a positive thing. I've got to tell them if you come to Christ, he's going to give you everything you want. Look, you don't have to do that because if they are elect, it doesn't matter what the cost is because what are they going to do? Gladly pay it. You don't have to change the, the terms of salvation. You don't have to try and talk them into becoming a Christian. That's, the, that's, that's one of the great freeing things of understanding. I don't have to talk anybody into salvation. I can give them the pure gospel of the, of the word of God with all of its, it might cost you everything in there. And what did Christ say? If you're not willing to take up your cross and follow me, I don't want you. What does it mean to take up your cross? Well, everybody in that society knew exactly what he meant. It means you're being marched off to die. And Christ is saying, if you're not willing to march off and die with me, you're not worthy of me. And you say, well, how can anybody be saved? Well, if you're elect, it doesn't matter whether you're going to die or not. You're willing to pay the price. Nothing's going to keep you from God. If, if you're elect, somebody say, if you come to know the Lord, I'm going to take you outside the church after, the, after the, you pray the prayer and I'm going to shoot you. You'll still come to Christ because it's not you. It's the power of God. Yeah. No. No. Yeah. When I think, if I think, you know, well, they'll come anyway, so I'm going to go play golf. That's me trying to decide for God. And and part of our praying for people, part of the praying for people is that as you pray for somebody, what are you more apt to do when opportunities for for conversation come up with that person? Witness to them. It's interesting. I was talking to one of the ladies I'm praying about is a Mormon. She I work with her. She's just in bondage to that system. It's a demonic system. And I told her Friday, I said, you know, I, I want you to know that I pray for you every day that God will open your eyes and shatter your darkness. Now, she thinks she's in the light. She thinks she knows God. She, you know, she believes that. But I say, you know, 100 years from now, you're going to be in hell. And unless God opens your heart, nothing's going to change that. She wants to talk about things. You know, she wants to go have a conversation about spiritual things. I'll probably take her up on it but but the point is I'm praying for her I have a burden for her why her and not other people I don't know I, I have a burden for her and you know what I'm going to pray for her that God would open her heart and, and give her light and I can I, the whosoever wills you understand the whosoever wills by understanding that there is a this is, well, this is um, what we're talking about here there's a general call and an effectual call the general call is to all the elect. This is, this is you know, standard theology 101. This is, there's, a, there's a standard call. It's Christ saying, if any man thirsts, let him come unto me. Was that a bona fide call? Absolutely. But then, later on in the past, you know, I'm the bread of life. Remember the bread of life passage? If, if, if you come unto me, you can have salvation. But then, later on, he says, you can't come to me unless the Father calls you, unless the Father allows it. Wait a minute, I thought you said whosoever, well yeah, who, whoever comes will come, but those who come are the ones that the Father has called and the Father has allowed to come. But it's still whosoever can come, can come. Christ did not say, excuse me, let me check my book of life here and see if you're in or not. Now he could have done that, right, because he's God. We're not. But Christ didn't preach like that, did he? And, and, and there's a paradox there that you're going to have to just let be because you're not going to sort it out. There is a general call. It's a bona fide offer. <coughs> Whosoever will may come. That is a bona fide offer. But who are the ones that will respond? The ones that God is drawing to himself. Those are the ones who will respond. The call goes out to everybody. But all, it, it, you know, Christ uses this imagery here. Remember the sheepfold in John 10? He has a sheepfold, and, and the sheep know his voice and hear him and follow him. When Christ, and, and, and the imagery, there, there is real imagery behind this. And in those ancient days, many towns had a sheepfold in the middle of the town. And all of the sheep of the community would go into that sheepfold at night. And the shepherd 
in the morning would come and he would call out his sheep and only his sheep, only the sheep that belonged to him would respond. All the rest of them would be milling around in there, but only the ones that knew him would respond. Was his call to all of the sheep? Yeah, but who responded? His. Yeah, they have one brain cell and the other one, yeah. The, the, the sheep is the dumbest animal on the planet. He also Yeah, and those are the Gentiles that he's talking about. They're, they're not there yet. They will be. Let God be God. There's a gentle call, and then there's the effectual call. What's the effectual call? That happened to Paul on the road to Damascus, didn't it? Here's Paul on the road to Damascus. I'm going to kill Christians today. I'm going to take them in bondage. And who shows up to mess up the whole plan? Jesus does. And what did Paul say? Who art thou? Lord. Lord. And he said, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. Oh, <coughs> Lord, what do you want me to do? What happened to Paul in that instant? He made a 180, didn't he? <laughs> this Jesus that I'm persecuting is the one who is Lord. Now, what happened? Did, did, did somebody preach to Paul? They couldn't get close to the guy. God had to do it. He was so bad, God had to show up. But what happened? There was an effectual call. Had Paul heard the call to salvation earlier, generally? Yeah, but there came a day when what? Light came on. Understanding appeared. And what did he do? He believed. We're going to sort some of the fine points out as we get talking about regeneration and faith and repentance. But God appeared to Paul and effectually called him. And by the way, the effectual call happened to all of us in here. If we're, if we're saved, there came a day when you heard the call to salvation and all of a sudden it was something... There was something different about that one. All of a sudden, you understood what you didn't know before. All of, a, all of a sudden, it made sense. And what did you immediately do? You responded in faith. You believed. And you became a believer because there was something different. You might have heard the gospel preached a thousand times before that and it didn't make any sense. And one day, boom, it made sense. One of the great stories I heard of this, and I don't know the exact name, I'd have to look it up, but back, I think it was, um, don't quote me on this, I think it was George Whitfield. Um, it, it was one of these great, one of the great uh, leaders of um, the church, and uh, there was a man who got up in a tavern, and they were poking fun at this pastor, this preacher, and he was sort of a mimic kind of guy, he liked to mimic people, and he got up and started preaching. This guy was a rank pagan. This guy was a scoffer, and he got up and started mimicking this preacher, and was able, you know, the, the inflections, the words, the mannerisms, and everything, and partway through there, he stopped, left the tavern broken, went back to his room, and accepted Christ. He, he converted himself. <laughs> By mocking the man of God, he converted himself. Had he heard the message before? Absolutely he did. He was able to mock the guy. He, was able, he knew the mannerism. He knew how the guy walked. He knew how the guy talked. He was able to do that. But when he got up and he began mocking this man in the tavern on the table with a beer in one hand and started mocking this guy, something happened that time that shattered his darkness and brought light. And he was, became a believer and a preacher of the very gospel that he was mocking. That's the power of the gospel. That, that's the power. And that's the difference between the general call and the effectual call. The general call, everybody. Who are the ones that believe? Those who are elect. They are the ones who will come. There's two calls. Whosoever will may come. That's a true offer. But the whosoever wills are the ones who will really come 
are the ones who are elect, whom God has chosen and called to himself. Now, why is that necessary? Because there's another component that, that, that makes this necessary. There's another piece of this that, that fits into here. Because some will say, well, what about free will? We've talked about this a little bit in class. Well, wait a minute. People are free moral agents. They have a, the ability to decide. Well, if you mean by free, moral, free will that you can make decisions, absolutely. All of us in here have a will, right? We can make decisions. We can choose you know, what to wear in the morning. We can choose whether we're going to have eggs or cereal for breakfast. We can choose different things. We have a will. The question is, is it a free will? Is it completely free? And the answer is, no, it's not. It is a will that's bounded by our nature, by who we are, by what we are. You understand what I mean by that? Your ability to choose is bound by what you are. Humanly, humanly speaking. All right, so there, there, that, that, that's true in the physical realm, for example. You know, if you're on a space shuttle, can you decide, do you have the ability to decide to walk outside the space shuttle without a parachute? Or without a parachute, without a space suit? Sure you can, once. <laughs> right? You're dead. Because why? Because it's not within your physical nature to exist in a vacuum without protection. So you would never think, unless you were whacked, you would never think of going outside Without a parachute, without well, yeah, a parachute, without a spacesuit, you wouldn't do that. Can you jump out of a plane without a parachute? I'm thinking parachute. Yeah, you can do that once. You have the ability to decide that, but what's going to happen? You're going to splat. Why? Because it's not within your nature, humanly, to fly. That's not part of your nature. The same thing holds true in your spiritual realm. Can you make moral decisions as a human being? Sure. But what decisions are you going to make morally? Sinful ones. Why? Because it's part of your nature. We talked about that in the doctrine of sin. It's part of your nature. You walk up to the average pagan on the street and you ask them any question, they're going to come up with the wrong answer. Can they make moral decisions? Sure they can, but they're made for the wrong reasons. They're not made for the right reasons. They're not made for godly reasons. They can't. The Bible teaches that our will, our ability to choose is bounded by what we are. And because we are apart from God, because we are alienated from God, because of the sin that is in us, we cannot respond to spiritual truth unless God does something. All right, now let me prove that to you. Let's look at some passages. Um, Jeremiah 13, 23, I'm not going to go there, you can look at it. Jeremiah 13, 23 is interesting. He says, can the leopard change his spots or the Ethiopian change his skin? What's the general answer to that? No, he can't, right? Because why? It's part of their nature. The leopard cannot say, I'm going to wake up today and get my, I'm not going to have any spots. Can't do that. An Ethiopian, dark-skinned Ethiopian can't wake up and say, I'm going to be white today. You can't do that. Why? It's within your nature. And then he says, neither can you who are accustomed to doing evil do good. What's Jeremiah saying? In the same way a leopard can't change his spots and an Ethiopian can't change his skin, neither can you who are lost, who are sinful, who are bound in sin, neither can you decide in and of yourself to do good. You can't do it. It's not within your nature to do that. You can't. Ephesians 4.17, let's look at that verse. Now understand what I'm trying to do here. I'm trying to make every passage in the Bible fit, and the problem is there's just a lot of passages you've got to put together. Um, so that's why you're not, we're not going to get through all of them here, but it'll give you something to think about and sort through. Um, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. The idea of futility there is emptiness. And what's the Gentiles? Who's he, what's he mean when he talks about the Gentiles here? Unbelievers. Don't walk like the unbelievers in the futility of their mind. What's the idea of futility? Emptiness, vainness. It, they're not going to get anywhere. They are darkened in their understanding. What, what kind of understanding are they darkened in? Spiritual understanding. He's not saying they're stupid people. Unbelievers, there's a lot of them that are really brilliant. But when it comes to spiritual things, when it comes to spiritual understanding, 
what are they? They are darkened. Their mind is darkened. And it says here, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. He's saying, you know, don't walk like the Gentiles because they are in spiritual darkness. Their heart is hardened. They do not have spiritual understanding. They can't understand spiritual things. They are darkened. They, they won't see it. Any more than the Pharisees. Remember the, when, they, when, they were, when Christ was talking to them and they say, uh, he said, you're blind guides of the blind. Spiritually they are blind. They can't see. They can't understand. Paul is saying here, don't walk like the Gentiles who have their understanding darkness. They're alienated from the life of God that is in them. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Why do sinners sin? Nature. That's what they are. Now, they're not all as bad as they could be, right? But they're all bad. Unfortunately, and that's what Paul's saying here. He's saying the shame of it is some of them are better than you. You're not supposed to act like them. And that's really what he's getting at. He's telling the Ephesian people, look, don't, walk, don't live like the Gentiles. You're not them. You're not to be act like them. You're not to live like them. You're not to look like them. They are alienated. They are darkened. They are spiritually dead. They don't see. They can't see. That's the point. This is the doctrine of total inability. You can't see. Unless God opens your mind, you can't see. We all have had our minds open. We, we read the Bible and we say, why don't they get it? Right? You ever see that? Why don't they get it? They don't get it because their mind is darkened. They're alienated from the life of God that is in them because of who they are. Romans 3, and we won't go over that passage, but Romans 3, 10 through 18, says they're all gone out of the way. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who seeks God. There's none who searches after God. Nobody seeks God for who he is. They're gone astray. They're wandering like sheep all over the place. You're spiritually dead. The, the unbeliever is spiritually dead. And Paul really drives this home in 1 Corinthians 2, <clears throat> where he, he really, really hits this heavy. 1 Corinthians is written to the church at Corinth. And the church at Corinth was in Greece. And Greece was known for what? Wisdom. All the philosophers, right? You go to Athens, you have all these philosophers and they, they prided themselves on their intellectual ability, their freedom, their, their, their wisdom, their knowledge, their deep thinking. And Paul talks about this in, second, in 1 Corinthians 2. He said, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with what? Lofty speech or wisdom. He said, I didn't come to you acting like a philosopher. I didn't come to you with some new interesting philosophy to throw on you. I didn't come and try to wow you with my speech, with my big words, with my great intellectual abilities. Now, was Paul intellectually strong? Yeah, he was probably one of the smartest guys of the time. He was not an idiot by any means. But he says, when I came to you, I didn't come to you bringing to you another philosophy, preaching to you or talking to you like your philosophers down in Athens. I didn't do that. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I, I, I didn't come with wisdom. I came just preaching the bare bones gospel. Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not plausible in words of wisdom. What's he saying? I didn't come to you with some really fancy dancy gospel presentation to wow you and blow you away and talk you into the kingdom. I came to you preaching the bare bones gospel. In fact, I avoided that because that's not what's going to save you. What's going to save you is God opening your heart and mind and you seeing the truth of the gospel. I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. It was not in that, but in demonstration of the spirit of power that your faith might rest in the, not in the wisdom of men, but the power of God. He said... I didn't come to you and try to lay on you some really cool gospel presentation that I worked on 
in order to convince you to become a Christian because if I did, what would your faith depend on? That. And that ain't going to cut it. Your faith needs to depend on what? The power of God which is in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. It wasn't based on the, the erudite, glib conversation. Now, there's something to be said for that. In other words, listen, folks, when you proclaim the gospel to people, you don't have to go to 16 weeks of EE to figure out how to share your faith. Share it. In weakness and fear and in much trembling. Because if that, if that person can come to know the Lord with your messed up presentation of the gospel, it's the real deal. It's not because you were able to, to schmooze them in and sell them something. That's not the way the gospel operates. It's not something. It's not a commodity for sale. I'm sorry, you were. The Bible says somebody becomes a believer not because you have some great intellectual right. ability. God gives you the words. Yeah. Open yeah. your mouth. You but, but, but I'll mess it up. <laughs> and, and God's saying, go ahead and mess it up because that means if they come to know the Lord, you can't take credit for it. Because you messed it up. That's the point. That's the point he's making here. Paul says, I, I had all the brains on the planet, but I didn't come to you you know, with great flowers, fancy words and all of that stuff. I came to you in weakness and fear and much trembling. Because then, if you were to respond, it's not because I talked you into it. It's because God did something in you. Because God called you to himself. Now, let's follow along in the passage. Yet among the mature we do not impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages to our glory. When did God decree this wisdom? Before time began. Ooh, got that coming in. I tell you, you can't go far without hitting an election. Which none of the rulers of this age understood, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. He's saying, you know, the wisdom that God, God ordained in eternity past, the preaching of the message of the gospel, was something that was ordained before time began and none of the rulers of this world. Now, who would be the rulers of this world? Ephesians 6, who's the rulers of this world? Demons, Demons demonic forces. They didn't get it because had they got it, what would they not have done? Crucified the Lord of glory. You, gotta, you understand, they thought they were winning when they got Christ dead on the cross. They thought they had won. And God says, checkmate. Wait a minute. I thought we won. No, you lost. Because God's wisdom is so much higher than our wisdom. And none of the rulers of the age knew what God had in his mind. These things God has what? Revealed to who? To us through his spirit. For the spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. How is it that we understand this? Through the Holy Spirit. It's not your intellect. The Holy Spirit gives us understanding. It's not your brain. It's not your great, wonderful wisdom. Verse 5 sort of underscores the whole thought process. It's your top of It's not through the wisdom of men, but... Power of God. God, the Spirit, reveals them to us. All right? For who knows a person's thought except the spirit of that person which is in him? Axiomatic truth. What is he saying there? I don't know what you're thinking. Only you know what you're thinking, right? Can I read your mind? No, I don't know what you're thinking. Who knows what you're thinking? You do. That's who knows what you're thinking. So no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. How do you know what God's thinking? You don't. Who knows what God is thinking? 
God does. The Spirit of God, right? He knows what God is thinking. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, world but the Spirit who is from God. God, that we may know the things freely given to us by God. How do I know the mind of God? The Spirit gives me understanding. And if the Spirit doesn't give me understanding, what can I not know? Anything. I know nothing. What is Paul saying here? Paul is saying that those who do not know the Lord cannot understand the things of the Lord because it's not within them to know it. You can't. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. How is it that you are understanding spiritual truth in this class? You're not smart. God opens your heart. How do I know spiritual things? I'll tell you, it's not because I'm smart. It's because God's opened my heart to understand them, to see them, to, to know, what, know them. For verse 14, this is the key verse. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He can't know them because they're spiritually discerned. Every, pag <coughs> every pagan on the planet cannot in and of themselves, understand one thing about the truth of God. Period. They can read the Bible, they can read the Gospel, they can read the words, they don't get it. Because it's not within them to get it. Why? Because they are lost. This is the doctrine of total inability. They can't understand. Yeah. They, they believe, but they right. The Mormon lady I'm witnessing to, she's convinced she's going to be in heaven. Apart from the fact that she believes that Jesus Christ is a spirit offspring child of Elohim and, a, and one of his many wives and that all the whacked out stuff that they believe, she she's believes she's going to be in heaven. I kind of meant like here. It's possible. Paul says, examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Test yourselves. Yeah. I mean, and, and if you want to know the verse on that, Matthew 7, right? Lord, Lord, did we not? Well, wait a minute. Why am I here? I believed. I did all kinds of things. Well, I never knew you. And in, in that verse it says, on the day many, many will say. Many what's, what's Paul saying here? The natural person, apart from a work of the Holy Spirit, will never see spiritual truth. Therefore, if an unbeliever is presented with the gospel, what can they not do in and of themselves? Understand it. What is it? It's foolishness. It's folly. And that, that was a stumbling block. You know, you walk up to the Israelite in those days, the, the average Jewish Pharisee, and you say, do you know that your Messiah died on that cross for your sin? Foolishness. Moronic. Stupid. There's no way. Look at the scoffing you see on TV when you get a Christian on there who presents the gospel. People mock. They don't get it. It's foolishness. It's moronic. It's dumb. That's not the way it can be. And yet that's what the Bible says the way it is. God, the natural man, the unbelieving person, cannot respond to the truth of the word of God unless God opens the eyes. And then they can understand. It's a work of God, not them. And that attitude, that's exactly how we must understand that when we preach the gospel to whoever the plant will see, even though we're being mocked mm -hmm. that, that's something that Jesus Christ already warned us of. Yep. If they persecuted you, they've already persecuted me, so I'm just hanging there and Jesus is the same thing so it's changed. And so we should do it anyway. Do it anyway. Paul did that in, in, in Acts 17. Remember in Acts 17 he went to Mars Hill and he preached the sermon on the unknown God? And then it said, when he mentioned the resurrection of the dead, what happened? Some mocked. Some said, well, come back and listen to this the next day. And then there was a few that did what? Believe. Don't worry about the response. That's the good ground, stony ground, You bet. Don't worry about it. Don't get hung up on it. Just preach. And knowing that as you preach, there is elect that's going to respond. I've only been a Christian for 
don't know why I went to the churches. I, I just, you know, yeah. I, I hear it, I greet it, and I, um, I don't know. And I was just like, I didn't get it. I didn't get it. And the reason you didn't get it is because you were darkened. You're, right. you're ignorant. You're, you're in black, black darkness. And, and that's how God designed salvation because if you were able to talk somebody into the kingdom, then it would be, your, their salvation would rely on human wisdom. And it can't. It relies on divine. Yeah. Yeah, he was, well, he was bad news. Yeah. He said, I can talk, Charles Finney, founded Oberlin College. His, his attitude was, given the opportunity, I can talk anybody into salvation. I can, I can argue them in to salvation. And at the end of his life, he says, you know, my problem is I've had a lot of converts, but few believers. It's not you. So was he a believer? I don't think so. But we'll talk about him later. He's, he's, a, he's an odd guy. Um, and that says here, the spiritual person judges all things, but he himself has judged no one. For who has understood the mind of the, mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? Anybody, anybody know God well enough to tell God what to do? Well, no. We have the mind of Christ. How do we have the mind of Christ? The Holy Spirit. Folks, you understand spiritual truth because you have the Holy Spirit. That's how you understand it. That's how this makes sense to you. That's why you're not walking out of this class saying, the guy is whacked, it's nuts, I'm going to go to breakfast and bag this whole church thing. Because God has opened your eyes to help you understand it. And that's the next point. Unless God opens the eyes and grants faith, nobody will believe. How do you know that? Well, let's look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. This is, this is everybody knows this passage here. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. But see, what we're doing here is we're getting the whole context of the passage. That's what you need to do. <clears throat> Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in trespasses and sins. Who's he talking to? Ephesians. The Ephesian believers. Yeah. He says, you know, you were dead in trespasses and sin. What does he mean by dead? Unsaved. Unsaved. And, and in reference, metaphorically, what, what kind of unsaved state were they in? Totally dead. They were unable to respond. It's like a dead body that's laid out in the morgue and you walk up and say, get up. What's it going to do? Nothing. Nothing. Why? It is dead. You walk up to the average pagan and say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. What are they going to do? Nothing. They're dead. Unless, assuming that, excuse me, um, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You used to be dead in sins. You were blind. Among whom also we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What, what was the natural state of the Ephesian people before they were saved? They were lost. They practiced the things that lost people do. They did the things that lost people did. And where were they headed? Wrath. They were children of wrath. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, made us alive together with Christ. Who took the initiative? God did. You were dead in your trespasses and sin, but God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love made you alive. The King James has quickened. That's a good word, quickened. Made alive. You were made alive. God took the initiative to make you alive. And that's, for by grace are you saved. What does he mean by grace you are saved? Why is it that God made you alive? God's by his grace. grace. By definition, can you earn grace? No. Can you merit it? No. Can you pay it back? No. no. It's by God's grace. God took the initiative to quicken you, to make you alive, to help you to see and understand. And then it says here, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The, the, the imagery here is God walks into the spiritual morgue where we're all laid out on the slab and he touches us and we come to life and get up. He makes us alive. He quickens us. He gives us spiritual life. 
and understanding. He takes the initiative. And by the way, as a dead body, you're not sitting there saying, choose me, choose me, choose me. Right? Because you're dead. You're completely insensitive to what's going on around you. And then it says here, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Why did God save you? For your benefit? For his glory. It's so that in the ages to come, Christ might say, might, might, might want to call one of the holy angels over and say, you know, just so you know that I can save people, look at Schaefer there. If I can save him, I can save anybody. <laughs> he gets the credit. He gets the glory. He gets the honor. He gets the praise for that. Because he did it. He says, I'm, look what I did. I don't get to heaven and say, look, you know, I'm here because I believe. No, I'm there because God walked along and says, wake up. And I woke up. And I believe. Because here's what it says. This is a great verse, right? Romans 2, 8, 9. I mean, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. Now, we look at that and we say, okay, it means that I'm saved by grace that doesn't come from me. I'm saved by faith. I'm saved by placing my faith in Jesus Christ. Is that on the surface a true statement? Sure it is. Absolutely it is. It's true. But it says, and that not of yourselves. Now, grammatically, when you dig into the Greek text, you find that the word that does not refer to grace. It refers to faith. What is not of yourselves? Faith. The faith to believe. You're saved by grace through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, lest anyone should boast. boast. Where does your faith to believe come from? God gives it to you. God grants you the faith to believe. You say, uh, well, can you really prove that? Well, yeah, I can. You go to, go to Acts to the account of Simon Magus. And remember, what did Peter say to him? You better pray that God would grant you repentance. And then later on in the pastor epistles, he says, you need to be patient with all men, for perhaps God would grant them repentance. God's taken the initiative, folks. And here's something that, that you know, I, that, that was a very comforting thing for me to finally understand in my own spiritual life. When I understood what Romans 2, 8, and 9 is saying, my faith is not my own faith. If it was, what would happen to it? It was a human faith that I exercise of my own umphing up. I get to take credit for it. And being a sinful person, is it going to be a forever faith? No. Here's the, here's the point, folks. Those of us whom God has saved, God has granted you the faith to believe, and that faith is his faith, is an unwavering faith. It is a never-failing faith. I like that. It's not a faith that's going to fail because it's not my faith. It's his faith that he gave me to understand and believe. And he walked along and brought me to life. And what is the first thing I did when I came to life? I believed. I believed. I placed my faith, from my perspective, I placed my faith in Christ. But what faith did I place in Christ? The faith that God granted me. The faith that God gave me, I believed. He said all good things come down from him. Right. That would be, besides salvation, faith came down from him. It did. He gave me the faith to believe. And then this is, the, this is the other thing. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath prepared beforehand that we should do them. God did not save you to just save you to do your own thing right God saved you to be holy because it's a faith that he grants it's a grace that he gives it's all of him it's not of you he quickens you he turns the lights on you see you understand and the reason you understand is because you have the Spirit of God and you can see and those nut jobs on TV don't and they can't see and they're not to be you know spoken against there to be pitied because they can't see. This is the doctrine of total inability. I hope we'll finish this next week. Okay. I hope.
This has taken far longer than I thought, but there are some very important things to, to, to put together. And listen, what we're trying to do, just, just so you understand, what we're trying to do is take all of the passages of the New Testament and as best we can fit them together. That's what we're trying to do. Okay? So let's uh, close in prayer so we don't get hollered at for getting out here late. Father, thanks for this day and for giving us your word. And I pray that you would really help us to ponder this deeply this week. Look over these passages again. Think about them closely. And we thank you that you have saved us and given us your spirit that we may understand the wonderful truths from your word in Christ's name. Amen.